As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The destruction of a brilliant emotional moment, which was Caden winning the game, it had a ludicrous five-minute wait, a decision that was not clear-cut. Everything that was awful about VAR was there in that one moment. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly, and I'm joined on today's podcast by The Athletic's Jack Pitbrook and James Moore. The night after Harry Kane's late winner sent Spurs cruising into the last 16 of the Champions League. Dot, dot, dot. Um, James, I'm going to go to you first because I saw your tweet at halftime. Which are you most annoyed about? The way Spurs played in the first half or the goal being chalked off at the end of the second? Well, firstly, I should say the tweet was actually from about 43 minutes into the game, not halftime. Mm-hmm. That's how annoyed I was. I couldn't even wait until halftime. <laughs> um, on my walk back to Tottenham Hale, I was more annoyed about VAR, uh, which I think you and I both agree is a nonsense. Um, I'm not just talking about this particular incident, I mean in general. Uh, Um, But now in the cold light of day, I think I'm I'm far more annoyed about that first half performance, which, you know, it goes without being said, if they played anywhere near the way they played in the second half with that intensity and desire and willingness to actually play the ball forward, they wouldn't have been in a position where they needed a 95th minute scrappy goal to win the game. Tell me what you thought you saw in the first half then. What were your eyes telling you about the game? I mean, I, I wouldn't like this to be misconstrued, what I'm about to say. But to me, and, and, and this isn't like, uh, don't read any more into this than, I'm, <laughs> than, than just these words. It looks like the kind of game you expect to see when a manager is about to get sacked. Like, and I'm not suggesting that is about to happen for one minute. But, you know, from watching loads and loads of football, mm-hmm. as a fan, I'm not talking about just Tottenham, but all football yeah. at various different levels over the last, like, 30 years you kind of get a feeling for what it looks like when a team feels James, like there's a managerial you, you, chance. It just felt you, like, to me, that like, there was no intensity, no sense of like desire or passion. It, it can't, you know, and I know a lot of people have talked about this looming World Cup, which is possibly more than just at the back of the mind of some of these players. Who knows? But to me, it just felt like the game was an inconvenience for those players in the first half. They didn't want to be playing in it. And uh, you know, to lean on the cliche, Sporting wanted it way more. And I they mean, just looked like an infinitely better team than Tottenham, which of course we just know they aren't. 
James, you're tiptoeing, which is not like you at all. Um, you're tiptoeing to, towards, um, you know, everything you everything you said there was true. And for me, the evidence of it, and we'll give a good morning uh, to Jack Pitbrook in just a second, everything about, about that first half performance, it, to me, it was measured by the fact that we constantly talk about the compactness of what Conte wants them to do. But there were times... And I found I found myself starting to measure it in terms of American football. There were times when from Dyer to Kane, there was 60 metres covering the entire team. And this is when the opposition had the ball. I suppose it's just getting passed through at random, really. Uh, Jack, are we, uh, with our Spurs hats on, uh, James and I, are we, are we overdoing the, how poor that first half was? No, I don't think so. I thought they were the first half was really, really bad. Um, and, I mean, I... The way I read it was it was the most obvious example yet of what a combination of the A, busy schedule, and B, looming World Cup is has done to the players. You know, so all, all of the players, pretty you know, nine of those guys in the starting 11 last night going to the World Cup, most of them have played basically every game they've been available for for Tottenham this season. And I thought most of them were playing at about 60%. You know, it felt like uh, it, it didn't feel like a high stakes game for those guys it felt like uh, kind of meaningless it looked like they were playing it as if it were a meaningless game one in terms of commitment to tackles and 50-50s and second balls which Tottenham seemed to lose every single one of you know so many times you see a player pulling out of a 50-50 right in front of us um and on top of that I also you know they also had the issue which is that they didn't really play with any with any confidence. They didn't really, particularly when they had the ball, they were just kind of, you know, they were always taking the low-risk option and they conceded a goal and that hit their confidence even more. Uh, and actually, going into half-time, my main thought was at least they haven't conceded a uh, Miguel Almiron-style 45th yeah, minute goal to make it 2-0. Per- because if they had observation, that, yeah. he would have killed the game. And that's exactly what happened, obviously, against Newcastle, where... Um, you know they conceded one, their heads went, and then they conceded another, and basically lost in the lost in the match. I, I hear what you're saying about the second balls and the tackles that they were losing, but that doesn't explain the inability to pass the ball 12, 15 meters square or, or forward, um, unless, and I suspect I'm pressing on something here as well, unless it is that um, the players, the ones who don't have the ball are not running with the intensity that you need to get yourself into that extra yard of space where the ball can be played to you safely. The number of times Spurs players received the ball standing still compared to, and all you can do on the nights compared to what they were doing, um, and Sporting had players going to the World Cup as well. Um, albeit, not as many as Spurs. Not as many as Spurs, that is very fair to say. I, my, my complaint about a lot of, lot of the way Spurs are playing at the moment, and it is at the moment, let's be honest, because they were playing very great fluidity at the end of last season, it's the number of times the players are just receiving the ball standing still. It's the, it's so easy to defend against it, and it requires people to be a bit more dynamic. I mean, I was putting uh, my hair out in the second half, and, and, and only in the second half because it was happening right in front of me. The number of times Perisic like, had the opportunity to make a run around the outside, drag a defender one way, create a bit more space for Davis or Longley, it mostly would have been in the ball in that sort of position. But instead, he's standing still every single time, waiting for a ball into feet, and then he's going to try and take on a fullback who is much quicker than him, realistically. And that doesn't isolate, you know, picking out one player, and I'm only picking him out because he was the closest player to me in the second half, mm-hmm. and I noticed it loads. But there's so, there was just so much of that in the game where there just didn't seem to be that little, like, sense of urgency, that little kind of spark of ingenuity that you need to, like, unpick a decent, well-organised team. 
It's like they were just kind of like plodding around, like waiting for it to happen. And, you know, and again, and again, eventually they did score from a set piece. Had the chances after that to win the game, even if you ignore the VAR nonsense right at the end. Mm-hmm. I've watched Sporting play twice now this season, and as kind of well organised they are, and as technically gifted as some of their players are, some of their attacking players are. Sebastian Guarta playing at centre half, a bloke who played for Liverpool quite badly over ten years ago. And they're not. And they're I suppose not he could have improved. They're a good team. They they're not an outstanding team. No, like if, if they if they go through and they play Liverpool in the in the last sixteen. How Liverpool have played this season, hot and cold. Liverpool would beat them, I reckon, probably by at least five goals on aggregate. I, I guarantee that would happen. Like they're, they're fine, but they're not that good. They'd be, a, they'd be a lower end of the Premier League team. But be, no, they'd be like thirteenth, fourteenth in the Premier League. And we will, I promise you, get on to the, to a the improvement in the second half and b the VAR in its wider context uh, than just poor old Spurs uh, last night. But Jack, uh, once once some. Um, Marcus Edwards had given Sporting the lead, and um, you know uh, how inevitable was it? Almost that comic book inevitability that he he would uh, get the goal. Um, the next issue with Spurs was shown up in that for, in that remaining twenty two minutes in utter relief, I thought, and that is the way they want teams to play, i.e., coming onto them. If they t- if the other team gets the first goal. They don't get. They just sit there, don't they? Just holding the ball, passing it around among each other, waiting to have a you know a occasional dart at Spurs. But going, go on then. We're not going to do what you want us to do, and it, it exposed Spurs' lack of oh, plan B, plan C, whatever it is. I don't know where the plans are kept. They exposed it totally. Yeah, completely. Although the, the thing is, like in the Newcastle game, I thought Sporting actually started quite aggressively. Mm-hmm. Like sporting did Sporting like Newcastle didn't just start. They didn't start by defending. Oh, they all worked out. Get the yeah. first goal and then say Spurs go on then. Exactly, and they they <laughs> actually you know and I kind of it was one of those games where I think if this was happening last season. Spurs would have gone one and up after five minutes. One one of those balls from Kane through Jason would have come off, and they would have scored early on, and then they would have had basically complete control of the game from that point. Obviously, that's not happening this season because Son's playing really badly. They have to work so much harder to score a goal because the fact that, you know, their number one cutting-edge player, Son, is playing badly. Um, and, yeah, I, th- I think teams have kind of worked that out. And as you say, I'm sure teams have realised that if you, you know, if you can kind of take advantage of Spurs' frailties with with an early away goal, then obviously you've got the game in the palm of your hands. Um, and, you know, we should make the point as well before we get stuck into the VAR, which I fully intend to do, um, that Sporting had the two best chances of the second half before yeah, Spurs. Na- na- sorry, Nazinho should definitely yeah. have made... He had two brilliant chances to, Absolutely. to win the game for Sporting. I mean, to, to, uh, to try and be sympathetic, I suppose the first one fell to him seconds after he came on. And you yeah. might argue he wasn't up to the actual physical rhythm of the game. Although I still think enough training might suggest you could put that ball uh, in, into the net. Well, just have a quick word about Marcus Edwards. I mean, comedy um, sketches about him obviously going to do it uh, anyway. I mean, should we be fed up the fact that he was let go from Spurs or was that the right decision at the time? And inevitably, you're, you're, you're going to have to accept that sometimes, James, these things are going to bite you in the bum, even if you do the right thing. That's a tough one. I mean, uh, uh, my instinct is that probably if he'd been hanging around at Spurs for the last, what has it been now, like three, four years... Yeah. Going out alone a couple of times, playing in a few League Cup games, Europa League games, Conference League games. He probably is he probably wouldn't have progressed in quite the in quite the same way. And like leaving England, going off somewhere else, playing in Holland and then Portugal has probably been the making of him as much as anything else. So 
I think it's a bit simplistic to suggest Spurs could have just kept on to him, but it does it does make you wonder whether that situation could have been managed in a different way. And I mean, he never went out on loan, I don't think, did he? To a, like a championship team? Went to Norwich like unsuccessfully, oh, but they sent him uh, yeah, back. Okay. Fine. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know what I, we should I mean, call... I don't think that was an entirely smooth process, his time at Tottenham. I no. mean, it clearly wasn't It clearly wasn't particularly easy for the people involved. So, I don't know. It feels a bit me. of a shame. May help me with the, with what we're going to call this on the Fusional Lane podcast. Um, I want to call it the Troy Parrott syndrome when you're not quite good enough to put, displace anyone on the team, but you're obviously a very good player, and then blah, blah, blah. Or is there a better example of someone the Spurs had who they just couldn't accommodate at the right time? Uh, clearly, when he was at Tottenham, he wasn't ready to be part of the Tottenham first team. You know, he did in terms of his timekeeping in terms of his application training in terms of tracking back his relationship with coaches and teammates like he just wasn't you know they thought that he wasn't he wasn't really cut out for that sort of first team environment like he had to grow up you know we we, we spoke to Edwards after the game last night and he admitted that in his words he was a baby he said he he was asked I think we asked him you know would you have done anything anything differently in hindsight in your time at Tottenham and he said I was just a kid you know what kids are like I was just a kid growing up and you know he was not a you know sometimes you get young players who are very mature for their age but Edwards was not very mature for his age so he did have to grow up do you reckon that if I mean I, I don't know who's very highly rated at Spurs but then there's being highly rated as a 17 year old which is like a sort of percentage chance of being very good and there's being what he is now, which is clearly a very good player capable of playing at Champions League level, even if we don't know yet whether he would be an elite Premier League player. But do you think if Spurs knew for certain in like 2017 that he was going to be as good as he is now, for certain, do you think they would have done anything differently? No, not really, because I think you know they wanted to keep him. Daniel Levy offered him good contracts to, to try and keep him at the club. So I don't think, I don't think it was that I don't think Spurs could have done much more. I think it was more that they there had been quite a lot of friction about about well primarily about behaviour and about contract negotiations, in which both sides were pretty pissed off with one another, I think. And I think Edwards thought, No, not for me, I'm gonna go and I have to go and be my own man and grow up elsewhere. So I think it was kind of more more from the Edwards side that uh, that was the push to leave, and I don't think it would. I don't really think it would have made sense for Tottenham to have dug in. And also, if we're going to do the kind of counterfactual hypothetical thing, if he'd stuck around, I mean, what do you think Mourinho would have made of him? I mean, it's not. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's not like it's not like. In, well, if you're going to do, if you're going to do alternative history, it might have made Mourinho um, have a better view of Ndombele. Um, you know, you're, 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 you, 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 what you don't want any walk of life is to be the number one thing at the top of the pr- problem in tray. And it might have moved Tange a bit one down in the, in the problem in tray. Oh, look, and what would, uh, meant, what would it have meant for, um, uh, what's his name, the, the lad at P- PSV, uh, Noni, is it Madwaki? Yeah. Noni Mad- Madwaki, who's like, who we think is like played in the same position. Like, is he a year younger, maybe? Yeah. But also like a Tottenham Academy player who's now playing in Europe and, and doing incredibly And the world well. was different at Spurs. You you were staring, if you were that kind of player, you were staring at the back of Christian Eriksen's shirt and saying, how am I going to replace him in the first team? Answer also, I mean, is, they were very reluctant to put players out online, weren't they, at that point? Yeah. Or the yeah, ones yeah. that the certain they felt Yeah, the ones that they really liked. I think sometimes it's just, I know, I mean, of course Spurs would, Spurs fans would rather Edwards was still at Spurs, but I think sometimes players just have to leave. You know, it's like Jaden Sancho in City. Like, Sancho 
you know, obviously Sancho was, was brilliant at City and maybe if he'd stuck around, he would have got slowly got the games that Foden got. But, you know, I think Sancho is obviously better for having, you know, in 2017 when City offered Sancho the biggest contract any 17-year-old had ever been offered at the time. And Sancho said, no, not, not interested. I want to go I mean, to Dortmund it, it, to be it, my own man. If you look at Barcelona and Real Madrid from like a decade ago when they were head and shoulders the best two teams in the world by miles, now they both had players, you know, they'd both regularly be selling academy players and then signing them back like two or three years later for like yeah. twice the money where they had to you know, what they did with what Barcelona did with PK, Fabregas, a slightly more more long winded one, but you know, they would let players go at sixteen, seventeen and then bring them back to the club by the time they were twenty quite often. Madrid did that quite a few, I can't think of anyone. Who did Madrid do that with? I feel like they did it as well. Oh, it's just like a big structural issue in football, isn't it? Is that elite clubs, elite clubs want to develop, they want to own the best young players, but they're not the best ground, they're not the best environments to develop young players. Because if you're Tottenham, you've got to come forth every year to be in the Champions League. And if you've got to come forth every year, that makes it harder to integrate the kids who are probably good enough, but maybe not quite yet. Like, obviously, you know, every now and then you'll get a Kane who just arrives sort of fully formed, basically, or Skip, who's incredibly mature for his age. But generally, it, you know, it's a bit of a, I mean, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but generally, young players develop, it's easier to, to develop outside of these super competitive Super Cup environments. And we're, set, we're seeing uh, the, the, the solution seems to be centred to Germany. I mean, I know that's a bit trite, but it's a, it is a fact. You get really high-level competitive football and clubs who are very happy to take the giant offers from the Premier League clubs to get the players back. Um, look, in a, in a podcast that's not going to be super positive, uh, uh, let's let's have a positive end to this. Spurs probably did the right thing with Marcus Edwards. He probably did the right thing, and congratulations to him. You know, because that that amount of talent could could just fade away. We've seen it a hundred times in professional football. Well done to him um, yeah, for ca- getting it all a together. Big, like, I think some. I think with what what makes me so happy about seeing Edwards' development is that um, you know he recognizes that he was immature as, as a young player. He knows that he's his reputation was a bit tarnished, I think, by stuff that happened in England, some of which is his fault, some of which I think isn't his fault. And he has, you know, he he's worked incredibly hard. He's gone miles out of his comfort zone. I mean, if you look at the clubs he's been to, I mean, obviously Sporting are a great club, but did a year at Excelsior Rotterdam and then I think, what, two years or two and a half years at Vittoria Guimaraes, which is, you know, a small... A, a small but well-supported club in a small town just outside Porto. Like he's he's really done the hard yards, and he and in in doing those hard yards, he's learnt how to be a professional. He's learnt how to. I mean, he, Ruben Amorim, the sporting coach, had a bit of a, a moan about his uh, his timekeeping and training the other day. So clearly, he's not. You know, he, there's still a little bit of work there left to be done. But he's proven that he can be relied upon in first team environment for a really good team, and he can win. And he's a match winner, which is what everyone always hoped he would be. So I do think it is. Uh, even though you know, I think he's in, in many ways Marcus is a slightly complicated character and not always easy to get through to. I think for a lot of people still find that, but I think he's um, it is a bit of a triumph really for his uh, for how he's kind of reset the path of his career. And you're right, it could have gone very differently. It's crazy that all my all my family and friends are here supporting me. So obviously, I wasn't going to celebrate, but I was just too happy. Like it took me a long time to get here, so I just can't help myself. And I also want to talk about the uh, the uh, obvious genius of Brian Hill when he came on. Yeah, I, I, should I offer like an apology? Because I think the other week 
what, what was the game? We, oh, it must have been Frankfurt, I guess, that game, when it was all quite mad at the end. Uh, yeah. When he it was quite damning, I think, of his cameo, really. When a lot of people well, were Well, no, that's, that's what happened then. Don't apologise. Something different well, happened last night. No, but I mean, night. I was sort of suggesting... So I compared him to Adel Tarab. That was, that was the comparison I made. So I, I think kind of... It wasn't unfair for people to read that as like a criticism of him as a player overall. But yeah, he probably turned the game. I mean, I, I saw like kind of XG, rolling XG charts on whatever from the game last night that pretty much like the, the, the upward trend of the second he came on was pretty sharp. And he it was good to watch. Yeah. Like a player who like wasn't beaten down by the last few weeks of negativity. Tried ultra hard. Yeah, exactly. Was, was running on and off the ball was willing to take players on, was willing to take risks with the ball, which not many other players in that team were up to that point in the game. Um, and it seemed to be quite infectious, I think. It got the crowd up a little bit again. And I think it kind of gave some of the other players in the team a sense of like, well, actually, we can do this. Uh, and you know, very nearly, not that he had like a direct contribution to either goal, but he very nearly effectively turned the game. James, are you a Gilliver? Gilliver. <laughs> I feel like there must be a better one than that. Well, yeah. uh, Bri- it's, it's a start. It's a start. Uh, I th- yeah, I th- I'm, I really like Brian Gill. I thought that yesterday, last night, was probably his best performance for Tottenham. Definitely. Um, in term, I mean, we saw a bit of what. Hang, we've hang seen on, I'm, in I'm just getting, so I'm just far. getting out a micrometer to measure the height of that bar, though. His best performance for Spurs. <laughs> um, like he's not. I mean, he does still look like a 12 year old Charlie Ackleshare, but <laughs> he his ability to to kind of take on opponents, take the ball in difficult places, win free kicks for the team. He's creative. He's got a good football brain, clearly. Um, he really gives them a lot of stuff they haven't had. You know, they started the game with Lucas in that position, who tried very hard, but he, you know, he frankly, he looked like someone who hasn't played a game in six months. Uh, you know, the, he couldn't control the ball. He kept giving it away. Whereas Gill gives them that kind of final third intelligence and also... Uh, kind of purposefulness and ability to spot a pass, which nobody else in the team apart from Kulisewski provides. And, you know, we, we've been talking all season. I've only had a backup to Kulisewski. Why don't they have a backup to Kulisewski? And they do have a backup to Kulisewski. Yeah, Brian well, Gill. Yes, but I've been convinced by the manager that um, he's, quote, not ready. Is that code for not good enough? I, I never quite work out how ready you have to be. Well, my reading of the stuff he said about Hill last season when he sent him out online was that, I mean, more or less explicitly said that, like, he physically wasn't right. Well, and that's he okay, but if that's, if that's what he thinks, but I, uh, yeah, then say I mean, it I out. People are way too preoccupied with that. And I would include myself in that, by the way. I'm sure I've said that about players before. You know, you, you watch him play out there, and it doesn't seem like his size or his stature, like, had any bearing on... His performance, like if anything, it helped him to be able to kind of like change direction quickly and knit between players and whatever else. And maybe that's because he was coming on against players who've been running for eighty minutes; they were tired. Um, and you know, his so his impact of the twisting and turning would be higher. And you know, I do think physical power is very important, but that's nothing to do with size in football. Over and over again, we've seen you know small people who are, who are strong on the ball. My, my God, without making the same comparison as Pochettino, look at Messi, the way he plays. It, it, it may be that... And of course, people develop without... I mean, I, I warn you now, I've got no formal um, medical qualifications, but clearly people develop um, post-puberty at different rates. He said the word puberty on the podcast. Um, and Also, you, lo- lots of young, l- lots of very small, slight attacking midfielders have come to England and you know early on in their career and maybe at the start looked a little bit overwhelmed by the physicality Luka like, Modric I, I was Luka Modric David Silva Cesc Fabregas yeah. Sam Nasri like it you know it, it happens and these guys have all turned into into really, Brilliant really footballers, good players yeah. no one was saying Nasri was too small at the end were they 
I feel like I should I should say I'm not predicting that Brian Gill will go on to be as good as Davis Silver, but he's he does have a little bit of that about him, like his <laughs> kind of yeah, you know the the kind of the vision, the the way that he comes in from the left hand side, takes the ball in his left foot on a half turn, Spanish, the haircut, the, well, the, the it's a long br- list, it's a really long list. Oh, the br- the brilliant 1968 San Francisco haircut goes a long way with me. I can absolutely assure you. But I've seen the future, and it's three four three with Gill in the Kulisevsky role. So where's Kulisevsky going? Well, he's injured, isn't he? He was oh, on the, oh, right, okay. He was on the, I, mean, oh, I, mean, I don't mean the, forever. You mean your future? mean your future? Yeah. So yeah, he was he's just literally just born <laughs> for three o'clock on Saturday. Um, Fans do we all stone- think? Do we all think Hill should play on Saturday? Yes. Yes. Thousands. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's and that's the kind of reactive pod we are. You have five good minutes in a game, um, and you're you're in the team, son. In you go. And I know. It's, I'm very pleased at the. Uh, what turned out to be premature celebrations, Richarlison was very much involved with them. That was very encouraging, actually. He was jumping around with the other players. This is not scientific, but when Richarlison walked through the mix zone last night, he looked fine. He wasn't he wasn't limping or anything. He was so. on a unicycle juggling a ball, I know. <laughs> Fantastic news. It's very, very good indeed. Um, go back to the start of the second half. What changed? Did they, had they had the proverbial fire put under them by the manager? Because they were... Without, I mean, they they still didn't look like they were, they were a brilliant team, but they were trans transformed at least in their in their intent. James, do you think the manager's just been shouting at them? Well, yeah, I mean, look, having been critical of the first half performance and sort of alluded to that feeling, like uh, seeming like players weren't taking on the messages from the manager in the second half, that changed so starkly or relatively starkly. He, he must have done he must have done something right at half time. Whatever he said to them, and this is a massive key, so whatever he said to them at half time has clearly worked. Uh, maybe it was just a sense that like their season, obviously part of their season, was on the line in the next forty-five minutes. But they just played with so much more like commitment and intensity. Bravery is maybe overstating it slightly, but I mean they, they took more risk with the ball they did in the first half. And you know that Hill substitution has obviously changed it a lot, and that wasn't quite as early as that. I, I think they played well. I played well enough in the second half to win the game. And you're right. I mean uh, they, they conceded good opportunities at the other end when they left themselves open. Um. But you do kind of have to do that when you're one nil down on a European tie, and you've got to take you've got to take opportunities, you've got to take risks. I, I don't think that second half performance should completely like mask the first half performance because no. if they play as badly as that for 45 minutes of any game, you, you might have been more two or three down. Not, they're yeah. going to be completely out of it. That's going to completely cost you a game. You know, if you look back, you know Newcastle half a game they played absolutely terribly and not quite as badly in the second half. Manchester United, I mean, probably more than that, maybe an hour of that game they were absolutely terrible. Arsenal. Probably in two chunks, at least half the game they're playing absolutely terribly. Uh, and you know, a lot of the games they've won, they've played quite badly for half ish of the game as well. And I just don't, you can't you can't continually do that and get away with it. And I think maybe now we're kind of trending towards the mean. We're like regressing the mean in terms of like results of performance. Well, interestingly, Hugo. So we talked to Hugo Lloris about this after, afterwards, and he oh, he made the obvious point, which is that he said, "quote If we had played the first half in the same way as the second, with the same energy, with the same willingness to go forward, to press the opponent and be very dominant, the score would have been very different." And then I asked him, well, "What you know? Why can't you guys play like that for ninety minutes?" And he said, "Like every team playing every three days, you cannot play ninety minutes with intensity, so you miss twenty to thirty minutes in the game where we have to be more cautious and try to." avoid conceding chances so I guess for Lloris it's you know he, he doesn't think that they're able to play with that second half performance for 90 minutes 
but he wants them to recognise when they're not playing well to not be so open and not can because I think that's what we've seen a little bit from Spurs this season is whether that's to do with positioning whether it's to do with playing out from the back I wonder which is something which in Spurs' bad moments teams are very very good at, at picking up on and which Ugo need, and which Ugo is a central part of the problem yeah which Luis frankly mm. and Dyer are doing really badly at the moment yeah um, they definitely have to be a bit more intelligent about moments where they're not playing well to avoid giving the game away which is what they've done it's what they did against Newcastle and what they nearly did last night as well Oh, the other thing to, to say about why the second half was were, was so much better than Danny is there were long spells, particularly at the start of the f- second half. And there's no exaggeration. Christian Romero was playing up front. He was literally playing next to Son up front. And they had Doherty in what you might consider the sort of inside right position. With more and wider, Lucas, yeah. Lucas out on, out on the far right. And unfortunately, L- Lucas wasn't really able to influence the game much. But then you know he got shifted to right wing back. And I've never really seen Tottenham set up like that for such long spells having having Romero all the way up there but it well, did kind of work Christian looked to me like uh, after the first half he decided he was going to get into doing something about this mode um, the tackle he got booked for was ridiculously brilliant and uh, you know it is in, in the way of Dyer um, on, on Sergio Ramos all those years ago you're going to get booked for it but there's no need to be booked because it was an absolutely brilliant tackle and sent the bloke into another dimension my heart was in my mouth when I oh, saw yeah. him kind of uh, oh he lined him up didn't there. he lined I, I him up remember the li- <clears throat> yeah it's you don't often see tackles made with that much force it was so powerful like the uh, the um, it's Paulinho, wasn't it? Threw himself into it. Yeah, it was huge. I, I've not seen this back. So was he booked for? Did he make two like really meaty he, challenges? He in did. He won. He won he the ball. The, he gave the free kick for the first one, didn't he? And then he booked him for the second one. Is that right? I think he didn't give the free kick. He, he played. I thought he sort of gestured towards where the uh, the first challenge had been when, and then booked him, and then sort of suggested the booking was for the second one. I thought that's uh, to I me that's a lot of wow. I don't. So I tweeted that he'd been booked, and somebody tweeted at me saying he was actually booked for the row afterwards because there was a big coming together of bodies um, I had to say at the time I thought he was going to get sent off um, I was pleased that he wasn't but I did think when he leapt in I thought oh god it's going to be a red card down to 10 men he's suspended for Marseille so yeah well, the, that the thought that went through my mind was at least somebody's doing something about this now um, and I know it was all very 1970s his solutions were going behind hello all those great German teams West German teams can I ask you about the atmosphere in the ground? Because watching on television with a pretty good sound system attached to it, it sounded like the... I mean, obviously, the, the first half was terrible, but the, 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 the crowd sounded terrible as well. There was no right. getting behind the team. Or I got that wrong. What were you doing, James? Were you really encouraging the team? Yeah, as ever. I think very quickly in football, and I think it probably applies to all teams, but obviously I've watched way more Spurs in the stadium. Uh, like, if a team plays badly once... Fans will kind of be will kind of get into the mindset to like g them up and encourage them and trying to kind of you know encourage them to like up the intensity and whatever else. But when they're playing this kind of plodding defensive, broadly like passive style of football on a consistent basis, walking football, they were playing at sta- stages like people just yeah. have no absolutely no patience for it. I, and I wonder. I mean, I know we're going to come onto VAR in a minute, and I do kind of think the two things exactly are linked one together. minute. You're right <clears throat> because. When so now my ticket to the game last night cost fifty five pounds as one of the cheaper tickets in the stadium. You're paying that much money to go to a game, and you know now you can't really enjoy a goal. And we've seen at the end of the game what happens when you do. Yeah, <laughs> you can't throw yourself into that moment because there's always going to be the possibility of 
that goal being overturned. And I talked on this podcast before about even that song goal against Burnley where he's picked the ball up 80 yards from goal. I half expected it to be disallowed for some stupid handball or whatever else. Like it's always there in the back of your mind. Yes, it is. So you can't really enjoy those moments. So you want to enjoy the game as a spectacle, I think. You need to have one or the other or both. And if the football is really bad and really negative and isn't going to set pulses racing and you can't celebrate the goals until the referees finally, you know, deigned to the point that they're selling as well. And until the opposition have deigned to kick off because I noticed after the first goal that Sporting took forever to kick off because they're hoping that some official somewhere will find fault with Benton Kerr's jump. Um, and it's all teams do it. All teams do it now. You don't kick off for two minutes. Um, I noticed uh, as well, very quickly, we missed it last in the last podcast, 53 minutes of football played between Spurs and Newcastle. Um, uh, the lowest ever recorded in the, in the Premier League. So this thing of managing the game by lying on the pitch once you go one up, that's going to have to be addressed by the authorities as well. I don't care. Have 20 minutes of, of, of added on time. Provided that's I mean, not- I, I, I mean if, you talk, if you want to talk about added on time, well, we can talk about the two get the last two games together. Uh, against two teams who have been like trying to run down the clock. And I, I've seen more outrageous time wasting both in the Premier League and at non-league level. Nick Pope will be very uh, disappointed to hear that. But, but, but if four minutes is basically the default added time now in the end of the Premier League game, right? Or, or European game. Four, four, it's always, almost always, if nothing happens, it's four minutes. It's just, that's just the default now. It used to be like two and now it's four. Yep. For those two games to both be five is insane. Last night, there's a VAR check for the Bentancur goal. There's, I think, five lots of substitutions. There's, you know, bookings and whatever else. There's time wasting. There's messing around. You know, they've had every single time they've made a substitution, only Edwards went off on the other side of the pitch. And he's only added five minutes. It would be interesting to see if um, uh, if referees could start trying to use this as a sort of disincentive to time wasting. You know, start saying, okay, well, if you're going to do that, we're going to put on eight minutes. Because clearly referees don't really have the stomach to give as many yellow cards as they should for time wasting. I mean, to for this I didn't. I didn't think the time wasting last night was like outrageous. No, nowhere near as bad as Newcastle. No, um, but, in but, the so, Newcastle but I still game, think like you know, like I say, when four minutes feels like the default in modern football, like to only add five in that after everything that happened in the second half of that game is crazy. And, and, and I absolutely guarantee to you as well. By the way, if that Kane goal had stood. On was it ninety four minutes and fifty two seconds or whatever, yeah. and he wouldn't have just like blown the second they took kickoff like he did, uh, having to allow the goal. They would have played for at least a minute after that if he was given the goal. Speaking of time, and I'm not suggesting there's any kind of like corruption there or whatever, but you just know. No, that's a given. Like that, if the goal that, had been given, would have been played for another minute after fans because the way VAR is being used. Listen, speaking of time, because we gave you two chunks of podcast. Um, during the past seven days with the, with the wonderful Klinsman interview as well. Um, the, the Arsenal supporting producer said to me today, I want this one to be really short, Danny. Let's just get in and, and do it. I said, I'll keep the whole thing down to 35 minutes, the entire thing. We've not reached the halfway mark yet, um, and it's already 45 minutes long. And we still have to discuss the moment when the game turned against Spurs. Now, let's all admit that, uh, that it probably didn't deserve to win the game because of the way they played in the first half. And let's all admit that some kind of, there is a, a bit of bias towards your own team. But I hope that the reasonable way that I um, dealt with, um, um, for me personally, with the Larice and um, Callum Wilson incident in the Newcastle game shows that I'm trying always to see past um, the, the, Navy, the Navy Blue spectacles. The thing is, Jack, um, even having seen 
that goal 50 times and having had it explained to me, because they didn't explain it, because, of course, they can't explain it, by, by people who played the game at a very high level, um, I'm going to say these things. That wasn't offside. It was not neither offside in law um, or, 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 or physically. It was, it was just not offside. The guy made it up. I don't know if he made it up. I've, What's another explanation? But, Since it's not uh, offside. I think he got it wrong. I think it's wrong. But I, then I think the law is wrong. Uh, I think, it, you know, in my mind, level should be offside. Level always was offside. I thought they had changed it. So, I, I mean, this is very non-technical. I, I thought they changed it so the two lines had, had to be like, <laughs> we're going back to daylight now. There had to be daylight between the two lines. Is that just a Premier League? But like the two lines on the screen, and again... I. This is, how, this is how fucking arbitrary it is. It's just, it is still just some bloke drawing lines on a fucking screen. I don't care what anyone says. It's bollocks. Yeah, he's got his MS paint out. I just think, last night, if you, if you were to think, what is it that I hate about VAR? Last night had absolutely yeah, every everything that I hate about VAR. All in one moment. It had the, dis- n- number one, it had the destruction of a brilliant emotional moment, which was Kane winning the game. It had a ludicrous five-minute wait in which the people in the stadium had no idea what was going on at all. It had a decision which was not even that... A decision that was not clear-cut, which again underlines what we've always said, which is the pursuit of 100% accuracy is a total chimera and a total waste of time. Um, it it was like, yeah, it, it was just everything, everything that everything that proves how wrong-headed it is, how damaging it is, how pointless it is, and how much it's destroyed everything that's, or so much that's good about football was all there. Like everything that was awful about VAR was there in that one moment. Like you don't need, I don't really think you need any other arguments against VAR. We don't need to explain why it's bad. You just need to replay and rehearse everything that Although, happened Jack, in the 95th minute. Having said that, you know, um, I do not rely for my football philosophy, much so I love him as a footballer, um, and he's always been a very nice bloke when I've been around him. Uh, I do not rely for my br- mental breakthroughs about football on Glenn Hoddle. And yet Glenn said after the game there, he said, you know, if it's going to be like this, you might as well, you're better off watching it on television because you see the replays. And he actually made the point people stop going to the stadium. What's the point? I, I think I think that's really interesting. And by the way, like what happened with VAR last night, and I've not seen it, but I gather there was some mad stuff in the Atletico Madrid game as well. BT Sport will be absolutely delighted with it. Of course, like it's exactly of what course. they want. Absolutely, like, they want to be able to put out a clip of Harry Kane celebrating, all the, all the fans celebrating. And this could happen to you know Cristiano Ronaldo at Manchester United or whoever at Arsenal, or whatever whatever club, right? The players celebrating, all the fans celebrating, everyone everyone going mental, and then like winding it back that hasn't counted what you've just done is a complete waste of time and you're an idiot let's put this video onto it like they absolutely love the idea that like you've made people look stupid and it exists purely for people watching on tv and that is entirely right if you're in the stadium it's absolutely rubbish it's terrible it's completely it it completely ruins the experience of watching football it it really does and and we've talked about this on the podcast so many times and we only really talk about it when it goes uh, it doesn't go Tottenham's way but uh, it applies both ways believe me you you just don't enjoy the moments that are the big moments of a game so so why are you paying your 55 quid then becomes your next question doesn't it Uh, it, it, yeah exactly yeah and it does put you off and I I probably you know I mean since since COVID I've been to most Tottenham home games I should probably haven't missed any actually but in the 18 months before that I'd, st- I'd stopped going as much, and it wasn't just because of VAR, you know, it's because of Jose Mourinho as well. Um, but 
it just it just ruins the moment. It ruins it so much. And look, if you're asking me how I reacted to that, I thought there was a possibility he was offside. And I'm, as you probably twigged by now, I'm quite a big pessimist. So I didn't really react that much to that goal because I was expecting it to be called back. Now, my years of pessimism have saved me there a little bit. I haven't made an idiot of myself and I've not had like the moment of, oh shit, I thought it was going to be a goal and now it isn't. But it's the, the, that's the whole point is VIR has completely numbed my like emotions towards the game that I'm paying to watch. They're not even required to explain it because even if... And these are both things that didn't happen. Even if the ball went forward, and even if Kane was ahead of the uh, uh, of uh, Emerson Royale, neither of which were true, they still give the offside then between the moment Royale makes contact and when it contacts the defender. It's a I mean about three and a half feet. It looked like to me. Now there may be some foreshortening, so it's a side. It was a side view. Uh, television production fans. They, they they're looking. For reasons to, and the, the television companies do enjoy it far too much, James. I, t- I totally get that, but they're looking for reasons to disallow these goals. The two, the two things that I understand is one, if they if they just think Kane was offside from the Royale header and this, and nothing else is relevant, how has it taken four minutes? Because it, how is it taking because it minutes? wasn't offside, so they have to fight. They have to fight. You have to continue. I, I, and the other thing I don't, it was entire enough time for the hypnotist to get into the truck and say <laughs> it is offside. You are feeling very sleepy. The other thing I don't understand is I, I've seen it suggested that the reason uh, the deflection is an irrelevance in terms of like a different phase of play is because it's not an intentional touch. It's a defender. In the penalty area, three yards from the goal, play, stopping the ball being played across the penalty area. What else is he like, trying to do? He's blocking the ball. He's not going to let it fucking well, run, is if he? He's if he's, not, the ball. If he's not influencing touch. play there, surely he and should it's be an fine. Intentional touch of his bloody hand, by the way. It's also an example of how the claims that the referee's the referee's decision still carries weight are completely undermined by the fact that they spend five minutes trying to disprove it. You know, I think that. Clearly, there are some examples where, like, if you're going to make an argument for VAR, you can say, look, there's examples where the referees get it very wrong or they miss something, and it's immediately apparent, if you can tell it in 20 seconds, if you can tell it in two replays, then maybe under those circumstances it makes sense. But if you if you give yourself five minutes to watch it back 200 times to try and, li- um, to try and find a reason to exclude the goal, then... You're not giving the referee. Then you're not giving the referee's decision any weight at all. You're not. You're trying to re-referee the game, which of you're course mugging him off. Wouldn't do. And I. I mean, I think that if we're going to have a sort of VAR, I mean, I, I think all VAR. I think VAR should be burnt to the ground personally. But if we were trying to make a VAR system that worked, <laughs> yeah. If we were trying to make a VAR system that worked, I think it would be fairer on the referees and, of course, on the on the fans. And obviously, I appreciate this will never happen, but it's just what I think. If they had some kind of like thirty second countdown clock or something, just so you can see, is it a really egregious error? And if we can't establish that it's obviously a mistake within 20, 30 seconds, then the referee's decision on the pitch will stand. That, I think, would at least be fairer. But it's obviously not worked out that way. That was kind of how it was sold, though, originally. I mean, there was no mention of, like, 30 seconds, but it was definitely when it was first brought in before that World Cup in 2018. I'm sure... Like it was kind of suggested, it'll all be very quick. The whole point of it is it is quick. We're not going to dwell over decisions and take ages. And then there were one or two in that group stage that took ages. And then in the knockouts, they seem to have kind of worked out. 
Yeah, it's a classic but example I, of mission creep, isn't it? Like, you create something, you say it's going to have a limited scope, but then, given you've got it, you think, oh, well, m- maybe this maybe this fancy new expensive toy should start paying for itself. Let's let it re-referee the whole game. The, official, the officials have used it to, to re-entrench their power over the game. The very thing that I was saying that VAR would try and stop it happening, but they are now running the football matches and deciding the results. Here's a question for you then. If that happens in the first half of the game at 0-0, let's say it happens after 27 minutes mm. at 0-0, that goal, do you think it gets disallowed? Because I think not. Absolutely because not. I think no, it, no. Because it's not the last kick of the game, it doesn't get disallowed. No, no. It, it, it disallowed it because it, it, they've spent four minutes... One, they don't spend four minutes looking at it in that situation. Two, they don't disallow it. Because it's the last minute of the game, the last second of the game. Yes, and you're... They've, you're, they've, you're, they've spent so much longer going over it yeah. and then they disallow it. And it's the reason why uh, in, in, in American football, for instance, all scores in the last two minutes, which is the, it, it, their game, which is the, really the last 10 minutes of action, are automatically reviewed. I mean, it, J- James, it, it, it's, it, that's a recognition that the, the goals scored after the 90 minutes are almost always very, very important goals. But it doesn't mean you should be allowed to bend the laws of time, space and physics to try to find a way to disallow the goal just to further enhance your sense of importance in, in some remote location. I just, want to, I just want to say this again. Where they put the lines and the, and the moment they draw those lines in terms of when they freeze frame the image is arbitrary. And, where, it's not and like you know, where they put the lines for a person in the case, this case Emerson Royale, but it's in other players, who are in midair, um, they're using a two-dimensional tool to make a three-dimensional decision. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. We really must take a break before one of us, I mean, you know, we could discuss the Spurs players after it, people as sensible as Matt Doherty just saying, we don't understand. Um, and we've looked at it back in the dressing room, we still don't understand. People in television studios um, who played the game. Now, look, players are notoriously poor at working out the laws, but there was nobody in. And BT had 15 minutes from the end of the game to get some kind of sensible perspective or reason why the goal had been disallowed, but they couldn't find one because, of course, there wasn't one to find. Let's be truthful about it. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. 
Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. No, I think I think every team is a bit like that when it's kind of you got nothing to lose. Let's kind of go for it, um, gung ho mentality. But look, like I think it's clear to see that we want to be playing the way we played in the second half for for ninety minutes of the game. We know we're capable of doing that. Um, it's just trying to get it out there for ninety minutes is is what we're struggling to do. So we'll analyse and, and do our homework and um, and try and get it right. Yeah, welcome back to the rump of this edition of the View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly, James Moore, and Jack Pitbrook are with me. Um, at the moment, listen, we the VAR thing quite rightly um, took us into uh, an almost an hour of this podcast. So I'm just going to say we were going to do a wonderful thing about Jack about uh, eight years ago, predicting in a newspaper as a cub reporter, England's predicted World Cup eleven come this World Cup. He's nearly all right, but we'll talk about that on Monday. We get more time. What's happened with the draw against Sporting is that now Spurs have got two absolutely huge away games in very quick succession: Bournemouth. Um, and uh, away at Marseille with the manager, presumably, um, certainly not on the bench. Um, how's he going to approach these, Jack? Well, he's got to he's got to win at Bournemouth. I think that's a must win, and he's got to draw at Marseille. Um, so the situation for the Marseille game is that a draw sends Spurs through. A win wins them the group. They can win the group with a draw if uh, Sporting against Frankfurt is also a draw. But if they lose, they're out. So it's kind of... I mean, it's exciting. It's tense. Like, it's not often that the sixth game of a Champions League group stage turns into a kind of mini-final like this. Um, So from a sort of plot perspective, it's very exciting. But it's obviously not what they wanted. I mean, you know, you could see why they went crazy when they thought they'd won the game last night. Yeah, of course. It's it's because if if they'd won the group on match week five, as you UEFA call it, then they could play the kids in the Stad Velodrome. Whereas now... They're going to have to go back. They're going to have to go to both uh, Dean Court. I don't think it's still called that anymore. But Dean the Court Vitality and the Stadium. The Vitality. It? Yeah, yeah. It's Dean not Court a stadium, and, is it? It's a ground. No, it's just definitely a ground. It's definitely a ground. Uh, and to the Stad Velodrome with Luis Romero, Dyer, Hoiberg, Bentenker, Kane, Son, etc. So it's um, yeah, it's uh, no respite for those tired players. I'm afraid. Three four three. He went back to it as soon as he could and. And James, we're we're all plugging for Brian Hill to start at Bournemouth, are we? I mean, you say he went back to that as soon as he could, but I really couldn't tell where Lucas was playing. Let's let, let's not dwell on that too much. Uh, yes, Hill to start at at Bournemouth at Dean Court. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, Bournemouth obviously have started the season quite well, but it has looked like I mean, who, who did they lose to last weekend? The other teams at the top of the Premier League, uh, City, Arsenal, Liverpool have all given them a decent whacking. But Gary O'Neill then came in and has, has solidified it a bit, yeah. They had their first defeat yeah, under so they Gary. Lost, yeah. they lost at West Ham, yeah. yeah. They were a bit unlucky in that game, actually. Yeah. Um, you you mean with West Ham's basketball goal? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So I'm sure they can, uh, you know, Antonio Conte and Gary O'Neill can maybe talk about the AR for a little bit. Actually, it was more like a um, volleyball spike to be to get the yeah, score right. Yeah, it was exactly what it was yeah, like. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I agree. I, I think it is a must-win game. Um, and I, I had horrible memories of the last couple of games at Bournemouth have been quite bad I think it's the one where they lost 1-0 where uh, their two red cards Son and Foyt got sent off 
that horrible draw in the behind closed doors season restart COVID thing. That was one of the worst games I've ever it's watched absolutely on TV. Dreadful. It was so bad. Really, really bad. It was at least when they got battered by Sheffield United around then, it was like an exciting game. But that, that nil-nil was horrendous. 9th of July 2020. Um, weirdly, I'd kind, I'd kind of expunged that 1-0 defeat out of my brain. I guess because it was just before the Champions League final, wasn't it? Yeah. In it May 2019. Uh, it was just before the, se- the second game. So right, yeah. But yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I think... Look, I mean, the way they've played the last three games, there aren't too many teams you'd, you'd want them to be playing against. But I, I kind of feel like it's almost as good as an away trip as you're going to get. It's not like a massively intimidating place to go, is it? And, you know, they're m- more obliging opponents than some other teams in the bottom half of the Premier League. I think they might actually still be in the top half, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Marseille have to win, right? So, inferior yeah. should be an open game and that obviously if Spurs go behind to a super goal in 20 minutes again then it, that doesn't really help but that game being open maybe plays into Spurs hands a little bit and must say I've lost their last three on the spin they got Strasbourg away this Saturday so um, the, I, I think Spurs should be able to win that game I don't think Marseille are especially good I think it'll be a total be, I think the atmosphere I think the, the occasion the, stadium is the occasion be, yeah. will be harder than the opposition and part of the ground is closed though right as well so that, I don't yeah, know if that helps us all yeah but lots of these players have played in World Cup finals semi-finals and will be expecting so to do again in a few weeks time so the atmosphere at the velodrome should not be the deciding factor um, because either, you're, either you are a top professional footballer or you aren't um, listen, uh, I'm sorry that the, the, the podcast has been so heavily weighted towards the front. Um, part of that is, as I explained later, because we've given you so much material to gnaw on uh, this week with the uh, lovely and excellent interview with Jürgen Klinsmann. Um, let's leave it there for now. Um, hopefully, when we come back in a few days' time, Spurs will have done better at Dean Court than we might expect, and we'll preview the Marseille game in much more detail. Remember, if you're not already an Athletic subscriber, uh, that you can sign up to read all the brilliant Spurs coverage this season, as well as everything else that's on the site. Um, easy. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod and sign up right now for just £1 a month for six months. Um, that's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. Now, thank you all for listening. Um, and what we'll do now is to leave you, for those of you who haven't heard it, downloaded it, praised it, and said how great I am, with another snippet from our bonus episode with the one and only wonderful Jürgen Klinsmann. Just scroll back to Tuesday's podcast, listen to the whole thing. God bless you all. Good night. Um, about, uh, yeah, Harry Kane's situation. You know, what should Harry do? What, where should he go? What, you uh, know, uh, because is he running out of time with uh, winning trophies? Winning, you know, big stuff. And, uh, and, and I did it. I was 31 and I said, you know what, I got to go there. And uh, right away, I won the UEFA Cup. I won the German Championship. And in the, in the middle of it, we won the Euros in 96 then as well in England. Um, so from a purely um, football-specific point of view, it was all the right thing to do. From the human point of view, questionable. Questionable because, I mean, for me, Spurs became a second home. I just loved my neighborhood. I loved the people there. I, I, I took my car to the training ground. The training ground was not the training ground that it is today. No, it wasn't, no. It, yeah, but it was fantastic. It was was a nice field, and the, the balls were a little bit heavier than those than today, but everything was okay. But um, I, I had to make that decision. I, I made that decision literally when Franz Beckenbauer was on the line, on the phone. I said, I cannot say no to him. He was my manager winning the World Cup, you know, years before that, and uh, there was no way I can say no to him. Jürgen, while we're on the topic of 
of Harry Kane, you know, he, he's 29 years old. He's got one and a half years left in his contract. He scored 258 goals for Tottenham. Um, you must have some, you, you must be able to understand how he's feeling. What Do you, do you have any suggestion or advice about what maybe no, he should do no, next? There's no suggestions, no, no, no advice. I mean, I'm a huge, huge fan of Harry. There's no doubt about it, as we all are, you know, at, at Spurs. Um, it's a decision that he has to make uh, sooner or later. Or, um, I mean, 29, he knows he has a very good team right now. Very, very good team right now. He has a, a, a very strong-minded uh, manager. So we all hope that he actually starts to win trophies now with Spurs. That's our hope. There's no doubt about it. But also, I think people would forgive him if he would say at a certain point, if it's next summer or the summer after, when his contract is definitely done over, that he will uh, would move on and into a club that might give him, give him maybe a higher probability to win trophies. I still have that hope that it's happening with Spurs. The Athletic. <laughs> 